We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. I wanted to start this morning by looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2. And as we are continuing going through the whole story of the Bible, starting in Genesis in creation and looking at the story of Scripture, that's the true story of the world, from God creating all things to man rebelling against him, to God sending a rescue and a redemption and a hope through Jesus, to him filling his church with his spirit, to one day Jesus returning and God restoring all things and making it new finally and fully. Uh, as we've been journeying through that, we are now in this section in the Old Testament called First and Second Samuel. To give us an overview of those two books, they actually started as one book, but it was so long, it required two scrolls. That's how it got broken up. Uh, so to give us an overview, uh, we're going to be primarily looking at First Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 16 to get an idea of what this was about. As we're journeying through that, many theologians have looked at this and they said, hey, this is really a book about three main characters. There's three main characters. There's this guy, Samuel, who we'll talk about. Then he is tasked with appointing a king. And the first king is this guy, Saul, who we'll talk a little bit about. And then when Saul fails miserably as king, then Samuel's got to go appoint a new king named David, who we'll also see. But I want to back that up a little bit because actually, 1 Samuel starts with the story of a whole other person, a fourth person who is so vital to the story, so instrumental to the story. Like the story doesn't happen without this person, Hannah, which name means grace or gift. And Hannah is the mother of Samuel. And Hannah's story starts off by her being one of two wives to this man. You know, have you guys watched that show, Sister Wives? So in, in this Sister Wives episode, Hannah's rival wife, actually, she doesn't call her a sister wife, it's a rival, we're told in scripture, that she has all these children. And that's how you found your worth and your value in this culture. That actually uh, middle-aged men like myself in this time in this culture would make business deals to marry young girls and what they could do for them was provide children and take care of the house. Right, And that was their worth and their value. So it was a business transaction to go, how can you come and make my home greater, my household greater? And the more children you had, the more successful you were seen in society. But Hannah herself could have no children. And we, we feel like a little deja vu right here, right? Like we've heard this. There seems to be this theme going on throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, where time after time, there's a woman who can't have a child. And there's all kinds of, just torment that goes along with that. And yet God shows up somehow and does something. And certainly God doesn't always come in and go, okay, here's the solution. I'm going to give you a child. Uh, there's other times where they find a joy and a satisfaction another way through the Lord. But in this story, what happens is God shows up. Hannah's there. She's praying one day outside the temple. And in fact, she, she's praying in such a way so fervently that it's visible. You can see, but you can't hear her. It's like she's, she has no voice coming out. And the, the priest there at the temple, Eli, sees her and he just assumes, man, this lady's drunk. She is, she's gone. And that kind of shows you the spiritual climate of God's people during the day, right? Of the Israelites, that when a priest sees you praying, he assumes you're drunk. Like, that's, you're allowed to laugh. That's kind of funny. So he's like, this woman must just be blitzed. Like it's, and she go, he goes over to her, he's like, hey, woman, 
what are you doing? And she's like, dude, it's not even noon yet. Like I'm praying, all right? Uh, and so he finds out what she's praying about and he tells her, okay, the Lord said he's going to provide for you. Sure enough, she ends up becoming pregnant. She has a boy, she names him Samuel. And then what does Hannah do? She decides, I am going, I'm going to now gift this child back to the Lord. The Lord gifted me with a child when I couldn't have one and I'm gifting this child back to the Lord, which meant what she did is she actually, after she raised him to a certain age, she brought him to live at the temple now with the priest Eli. Now, this was not super uncommon, uh, going to the temple was, but it wasn't super uncommon to send your children to go live with someone else where they would apprentice under them and they would learn that trade. And usually what you would do is you would send them somewhere where they're gonna learn a trade that's going to then benefit your family, right? Again, business transactions going on. Learning this trade, how are you gonna come back and then care for me in my old age because I didn't have 401ks or other retirement plans? So it wasn't that weird, except what she did is she sent him to go live at the temple which wouldn't have afforded her any kind of financial gain. So when, when children are how you survive and make it and become successful in that culture, and what she does is say, I'm forfeiting any opportunity to use my child in that way. I see that this is a gift from the Lord and I wanna bless him right back. What a selfless sacrifice. This, this was not a way for her to now get ahead or to be seen as equal to or greater than her sister wife. But it was a way for her to bless and honor the God who took care of her when no one else saw her. And so what happens then is when she does this, when she decides to do this, she brings Samuel to the temple. Then she starts letting out this joyful song-like prayer, this triumphant, loud, boisterous, prayer in front of everyone. And what a stark contrast for when she was standing at the temple and she had no voice in her prayer, in her deep sorrow. And now where she's just like, she's singing out loud and everyone could hear. So read with me 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to read the first 10 verses. Hannah prayed this, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noble men and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. 
The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. This is God's word. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear, to see, to receive your words spoken to us this morning, not as a text written thousands and thousands of years ago for us to study, but as your words spoken to your people, that we would come to know you greater. In Jesus' name, amen. So several years ago, I was going for a run. This was several years ago when running didn't make my whole body hurt. And I was going for a jog and I was just thinking and praying to myself. And that's usually when I would find clarity. And I was, I was jogging and I was thinking, and I was praying. And then this thought just kind of hit me that literally stopped me dead in my tracks. This, this phrase just entered my mind and it was, everything I do fails. Everything I do fails. And literally it stopped me dead in my tracks. I felt like just falling to the floor. That's how heavy those words weighed on me in that moment. It wasn't just a phrase. It wasn't just a thought. It wasn't just, oh man, that stinks. Like I felt it. I wanted to just fall down. There was a a whole mess of things. I could bore you with the details later. I won't, but a whole lot of things that I had been working at, that I had been trying at, things I had been trying to build, things I had been trying to salvage, and none of it was going right. Our family of five, we just became a family of five that year, made $17,000 that year. We were living in a, a little apartment. I felt like I wasn't providing for my family. I wasn't being successful in this business I was trying to start, and I wasn't even stewarding this a nonprofit organization that was tasked to take over well at all. And then my friendships were struggling, like all kinds of, everything you do just fails. And I was like, man. And then that moment of sorrow and of desperation almost immediately turned around because another phrase came into my head after that. It was a phrase that said, but I never fail. And that one wasn't spoken of me. That was spoken to me from the Lord. I believe both of those statements were spoken to me by the Spirit in that moment. To humble me, to bring me to a place where I just had to like drop to my knees. Everything I do fails, like in my own strength, in my own power. But God says, but I never fail. Stop trying to do your plans over here in your strength and in your power. I'm inviting you to come and join what I'm doing because I'm not failing at it. I'm inviting you to come and join my work in my strength and in my power. And suddenly that, that moment of just wanting to like fall down to the floor and like just feeling empty became this wanting to fall down to my knees in worship where my heart was full. And I, and I got back up and I finished my run and it seemed like I was lighter than before. Like, no joke. There was this, this weight that was just kind of lifted off of me. I don't have to keep trying so hard to prove myself and to accomplish things in my strength and in my power. And Hannah's prayer says this. This is what she says at the end of verse nine. A person does not prevail by his own strength. She's setting the tone for not just what all of First and Second Samuel are about, but what really the whole story of the Bible is about. 
What had been going on right now in this culture at this time when Hannah's story is taking place? We just heard Anthony preach on last week, the book of Judges. And what we saw was Israel had finally been saved out of slavery to Egypt. They'd been rescued by God miraculously. He brought them through the Red Sea. He brought them into the wilderness and he provided food and water for them in the wilderness when they had nothing. And then finally, we saw in Joshua, he brings them across the Jordan River into the land he promised their people hundreds of years ago, the land of Canaan. Defeat their enemies. They, they take this wonderful land and they have a home now. And they have a God who said, I'm your God, you're my people. I will be your king. And you'll be my representatives. You'll show the rest of the nations what I'm like so that they too would wanna come and join. Stop trying to do things in their own strength and their own power and come and join my work. And yet what happened with Israel was once they got into that land and really even before they got there all along the way, kicking and screaming, they kept rebelling against God over and over again. And Anthony talked about how they repeated this cycle where God would rescue them, they would find rest in the land, and then they'd rebel. And when they would rebel, it was turning to the other nations. Instead of being a light to them, showing them what God's like, they would see these other nations and want to be like them and go, hey, they have a human king who looks strong and powerful. How come we don't got a king like that? And God goes, I'm your king. Yeah, 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 but look at them. Like they got gold and they got land and they got cows. Look at all the cows, right? I've never been jealous of anyone's cows before, but you know, in that time, it meant a whole lot more. And so they're like, we wanna be like that. And so they'd start worshiping those nations' gods. And so after the rebelling, what would happen is they would reap what they were sowing. They would reap out of their rebellion. God would just simply hand them over. If you wanna worship those gods so much, here you go. If you wanna be like those nations so much, here you go. And he would allow those nations to come in and take them captive. Now you're part of it. And then they'd realize, oh, grass isn't always greener. <laughs> this is not good. And they'd start crying out to God and God would send someone to come and rescue them. So rescue again, back through that cycle. They'd find rest for a number of years and then repeat the cycle again, rebellion over and over. And this phrase kept happening over and over again throughout the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Do you remember the beginning of the story in Genesis when we started this year? in the garden, that the man and the woman took the fruit from this tree they were told not to eat from. Why? Because it looked desirable in their eyes. And because they were given this promise by the serpent, if you eat from it, you'll be able to decide for yourself what's good and what's not good. You'll be able to decide. And this is what's happening throughout the time of the judges. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And it was always wicked. And so actually this story picks up at the tail end of that because Samuel is seen by many as like the last judge during that time before uh, that changes and it's no longer judges who rule over Israel, but becomes a king. So everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and Hannah sees it and she sees it is not going to get you what you want because no one can prevail on their own strength. You will fail eventually. Yes, those other nations look powerful today, but God can make them crumble tomorrow. Yes, my sister wife has all these children right now, but in the end, what do I have? I have the love of the father. That's what I have. And that was that lesson I had to learn in that moment, right? That, that thing that God was trying to just kind of 
shout into my ear. Stop trying to do it in your own power, doing what's right in your own eyes. It's not working. And that was a grace of God. Because if it had been working on the outside and I looked successful, I would just keep patting myself on the back. Thank God he stripped that away from me, right? No, 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 you are in need to come and partner with my work instead. And so that's the tone we get all throughout the book of Samuel, first and second. What we see immediately after that is there's this story where uh, God's people, they try to go and do battle against the Philistines and they do it in their own ways. And then God lets them just wipe them out, right? Then, then we see the story of like, hey, finally, God just kind of gives in. You want a king? You want a human king so bad? Just like he did with the nations? You want to worship those nations? Fine, I'll let them take you over, see how it works out. This is what he does with the king. You want a human king? Okay, fine. Fine, I'll give you what you want. And so after Samuel grows up in this temple and he, he's learning under the ways of Eli the priest, you see that his sons, the priest's sons are just terrible they're supposed to be in the lineage of the priests. They're supposed to be caring for the people, but they're only looking out for their own interests. They're not humble. They're arrogant and prideful. But Samuel is growing up in this way where he's learning how to slow down and listen to the Lord. There's a story where he's, he's laying there in the temple one night and he can't sleep because he hears someone calling him. And so he goes to Eli. He's like, hey, did you call me? He goes, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed, boy. Goes back. And then he hears voice again, Samuel, Samuel. He goes back, hey, did you call me again? This happens three times. And finally he's like, no, it's not me. You must be hearing another voice. I think it's the Lord. Go and listen and ask the Lord, what do you want from me? So he does that. And he's learning this, this rhythm and this pattern now of slowing down. Stop trying to make things work from what you see and strategizing with your own eyes. Just slow down and stop and wait silently, patiently for the Lord to speak. And so when Samuel goes out and he he's now starts becoming uh, in this role of being not just a priest, but a prophet. By the way, all throughout scripture, there's these roles of a king, of a prophet, and of a priest that humans fill. And God actually never designed for those to be separated. He, remember that's what he told Israel, is you're to be a holy kingdom of priests. The, the whole all of you, you're a royal priesthood, Right? That's what humanity was designed to be as representatives of God, being made in his image, showing the world what he's like, that we take on that world to all of creation. That, that kingliness of caring for and having dominion and authority over, right? The, the priestliness of mediating between others and God. Let me show you this God. And that prophet-like of like, let me speak of God's glory, of what he's done to all the world. That's something we're all called into. And yet they would parse these roles out. And so you had this priesthood lineage of the Levites who were coming up and everyone born to them would be a priest, but they're messing it up. So God brought someone else in, Samuel. And Samuel's listening to the Lord. And then the Lord tells him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and choose a king. And so he goes and he finds this guy named Saul. How many of you guys are familiar with Saul? Saul, there's two Sauls, by the way. When I was a kid, I got this mixed up, right? There's Saul in the New Testament who becomes Paul. There's King Saul, the first king of Israel in the Old Testament. And we find that story in 1 Samuel. That Saul was this tall, handsome, strong-looking dude. 
and surely this has got to be our king. And so they choose this guy as a king, and he starts off okay enough. He starts off pretty okay. But what happens is Saul slips into this pattern of starting to see success for himself. And people are singing songs about him. And he starts patting himself on the back. He starts puffing his chest up. And he starts filling himself with pride and with arrogance and feeling like he is the man. And then what happens is he messes up. And listen, everybody messes up. Like raise your hand if you've never messed up before. You almost messed up right now, Russ. <laughs> Everybody's messed up, right? But here was Saul's problem. Is Samuel would come to him and be like, hey, dude, you, you know you weren't supposed to do that. And Saul would be like, I did nothing wrong. I, I did what was right before the Lord. And he would just double down on it. He wouldn't take responsibility. Again, problem in humanity, right? If we rewind again, back to the beginning of the story, God shows up after they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to. Hey, where are you guys? Hey, did you eat from the tree I told you not to? Oh, it wasn't me. It was this woman you gave me. It wasn't me. It was that serpent in the garden. Not taking ownership for when you mess up. It's something simple I'm trying to teach my kids right now, and yet I realize all the time how much I struggle with that. Because we don't like that, do we? When someone calls you out, they call you on the carpet, what, what starts to happen inside? For me... I start welling up with fear. Oh no, they're going to find out that I'm not who I've been showing myself to be. That fear starts to set in. Uh, this pride sets in like, wait, wait a second. Who are you to say that, uh, that I messed up to point out anything? Because I remember that one time you messed up a long time ago and I want to point that out right away. And then the secondary emotion starts coming from both of those called anger and rage. And this is what would happen with Saul. So God goes, all right, that's it. I think our people have seen enough what it looks like when they choose the kind of king that they want, right? This pattern of, all right, fine, you're gonna reap your rebellion, but now I'm gonna come and I'm gonna rescue you. So I'm gonna send a, another representative to rescue you. And so God speaks to Samuel again. He goes, okay, listen, I want you to go pick out another king. Stop mourning over Saul, if you keep just dwelling on that, he's going to keep letting you down. You'll keep in this mourning process. I'm doing something new now. And so Samuel's uh, rhythm and pattern of learning how to listen to the Lord is paying off. He goes, I want you to come. I want you to go to this certain family, this guy named Jesse. He's got a bunch of sons. We're going to find a king there. So he goes, okay, so he heads over there. Turn over to chapter 16. At this point, Saul has gotten so crazy with pride and arrogance that Samuel even says to the Lord, wait a second, if he knows, if Saul gets even a whiff that I'm going to go pick another king, he's going to kill me. He wants to hold on to that power for himself. So God goes, all right, just, just pretend like you're going to go <laughs> do uh, like a sacrifice or something, right? So he's on this covert mission and he goes to Jesse's home and I just want to read from you two verses from chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. He, he tells Jesse, bring all your sons before me. So he brings almost all of his sons before him, all but one. Verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, this is one of his sons, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. What he, what he does is he sees someone who's tall, good-looking, strong, and he goes, this has got to be the guy. 
This is what a king looks like. Verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. That's like one of those rare moments where, you know, Jesus would speak in parables a lot. And sometimes it's like, what does God really want? Like, what is he really saying? It's one of those rare moments where God just peels back the curtain and just says it very plainly. You're looking at what's on the outside. You're judging status and success and what it looks like on the outside to be fit for serving me, to be fit for representing me. Because that's what it's all about, right? God's been looking for representatives. It's what he made us for. He made humanity to be his image, to be his living statues, his representation to the rest of creation of what he's like. So surely God wants the tallest, strongest, most successful person. That's gotta be it, right? God goes, you're looking at all the wrong things. If, if I could just open your eyes a little bit, better. If you could just peer through and see what I see. God's not saying he's got x-ray vision to, to look at the, like the physical boom, 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 beating heart. What he's saying is I'm looking at the intents of that person. I'm looking at what's going on in their soul. I'm looking at their desires. I'm looking at, are they humble? Like Hannah prayed, like Hannah said, no one prevails in their own strength. Doesn't matter how tall and strong this dude is. Doesn't matter how smart that person is. Doesn't matter how successful they've been. No one will prevail in their own strength. I'm looking at, are they humble enough to come and recognize they need me? Will they come and partner with me in my work? Because I will not fail you, Israel. I will continue to prevail, to prevail for you. But I need someone who's willing to partner with the work I'm doing who's willing to come and say, hey, I'm gonna work in your strength, Lord, not in my own. And I don't see that in these people and I don't see it in what Israel's asking for right now. So do you have any other sons? Samuel asks finally, all right, do you got any other sons? It's not these guys. Like he, he, he wants this, the best looking one there, but he had this pattern of listening to the Lord. He goes, all right, the Lord's saying it's not him. It's not him, him, him. Do you have any other sons? And Jesse's like, yeah, you know, there's this one boy. Uh, we sent him out to like hang out with the sheep all day. <laughs> he's the smallest, the youngest. He's kind of annoying. I'm putting words in Jesse's mouth now. And so he's working the fields. Like he didn't even bring him. Samuel said, bring all your sons to me. And they left David out there. There's no way this person is the one the Lord's looking for. No way. He goes, go get him. I'm not leaving and we're not even sitting down until he comes. That's what Samuel tells him. So they bring David before him and the Lord tells him, this is who I'll work through. Now listen, what we see throughout the rest of First and Second Samuel, what we, what we see throughout the rest of David's story is that David messes up big time too. Like he's no better. The only difference is when David messes up, Someone comes to call him out, like Samuel was calling out Saul. And instead of being like, no, 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 I, I, I'm good. I did what was right. 
Instead of finding a way to give a little white lie to change the situation, that fear that starts to come up to go like, oh no, what if they see me for who I really am? David has no problem letting people see him for who he really is. And he goes, I blew it. You're right, I, I, I blew it royally. And he weeps and he mourns and he asks the Lord to forgive him. He's, he's not our hero of the story because he does some terrible things. But the one thing David has going for him is he recognizes he will not prevail in his own strength. He humbles himself before the Lord. He says, I am in need of the Lord to do his work here through me, through Israel, through the world. And God says, this is a man who's after my own heart. Listen, for each of us in this room, I know, I know that there's something we're posturing with, right? There's some kind of mask we're putting on, right? Whether it's in your workplace because you want to show up and you want to represent yourself and you want to get ahead, whether it's in your home because you want your own family to think of you a certain way, whether it's just in your community, like you, you want to be seen a certain way in front of others. You want to show yourself, represent yourself to be a certain way so that other people would be like, oh, wow. Slow clap. Did I wake someone up just now? Wow, look at you. You're so amazing, right? And then God's like, yeah, this is the one I've been waiting for. This is, yeah. Hey, you can represent me. Look how amazing you are. You have got it together. Let's just be honest with ourselves. I'm, I'm mainly speaking about myself right now, but because I know humanity somewhat well enough, I'm willing to bet that's true of all of us here. No one will prevail in their own strength. No one. That facade, the veneer starts to scratch away pretty quickly. And God, we already heard, he said it. He sees through that to your heart. But eventually, so will everyone else. You know what the best thing to do is? Just rip it off yourself. Just lay it open yourself and go, this is, this is where I'm at. I'm a mess. I need Jesus to show up. I can't do this on my own. I can't even be like a loving father or husband on my own. If you guys knew all the, all the selfish stuff that was inside of my heart, how in the world am I going to care for a church? How, how in the world am I going to love my neighbor? Especially when they do or say things I disagree with or that like bothers me in the comfort of my own home. How dare they, right? No, no, I, I can't do that. I need help. I need the Lord's strength to prevail. I need to come and partner in the work he's doing in his world and stop trying to do all this on my own. And when those moments of fear start to show up of like, oh no, they're gonna see me for who I really am. I don't have to fear because I know that God sees me already. You know, the one who created all the universe, the one who rules all things, the creator and maker of all, the one who will always live and sustain forever. The one who I, I, he's the one I really got to impress. He sees it already. So why am I afraid of what this person thinks? Why am I afraid of what I think of myself? God already sees. And do you know what he says? David, the scrappy little shepherd boy. Oh, he's willing to recognize his need for me. 
this is a man after my own heart. I will elevate that. Because that's what Hannah says, right? In her prayer. Let's go back to chapter two, verse seven. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Verse eight, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the trash heap. God will lower the proud, but he will exalt the humble. That's what he's looking for. Are you willing to partner with him? And so what we see is time after time, king after king, Israel's failed. All these kings, including David, who was the best that they ever had, he failed them too. And then after that, it just goes downhill. They get worse and worse. And if they don't fail them miserably in their life, which they do, they all end up dying. So they fail them at one point anyway. But God said, hey, Israel, I'm your king. And Israel said, yeah, but we want a human king to represent us. He goes, you're my representatives to represent me, but you want a human king to represent you? Fine. And what does God do? The only thing God can do. Let me rephrase that. The thing only God can do is that God, he answers both at once. So a king comes to Israel in the line of David, in the line of Jesse, out of that lineage of kings. But he's a king who not just rules over all the universe, even though the world, when he was walking this earth, didn't see it. He's also a prophet like Samuel, who would speak the truths of God to others. He's a priest like Eli. He would go and mediate for others and care for them and bring them close to God. Jesus takes on the fullness of what humanity was supposed to be that we parsed out. We said, we can't do this. And Jesus represents it all for us. And he becomes the king, the representative, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity. And yet at the same time, because he is God himself coming in the form of man, we also see that God restores his rightful place on the throne as God being our king. And when you have like the most powerful person in the universe coming down in the form of a helpless child, cleaning the dirty feet of his disciples, of his followers, caring for the people that nobody else cared for, sitting down and having meals with the people that everyone else cast aside in their society, and then giving up his very life for you and I. You see that the most powerful made himself the most humble servant of all, giving up every right he had for his father and for you and I. So we have this example now of Jesus who says, even if you have that power, humble yourself before the Lord. And then what happens? Jesus, when he humbles himself to the point of death, to being put in the grave, the lowest you can get, that God exalts him, just as Hannah prayed. The end of Hannah's prayer, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. She, wasn't, she didn't even know this, but she wasn't talking about Saul and she wasn't talking about David. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. And Jesus rose out of that humble grave and he took on the form that is to be given glory by all of the earth. And he now sits at the right hand of the father on his throne as the king over all of creation. This is the humble servant, glorious king that we have in Jesus. 
So now, yes, God's people, we have a king and we can look to him and we can see what he's done and he represents us and we are called to represent him. So what's our role in that? We don't got to try to become better Christians to prove ourselves. No, 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 we're falling into that same trap. We submit and we say, we, we need you. We humble ourselves and say, we need to join the powerful work of Jesus. Amen? Good news is he gives us his spirit so we can do that. So Father, we ask that your spirit would come, would empower us, that we could be representatives of the true king who represented us in full humanity. God, help us to be a people who love you and who love others well because we recognize in our humility that when we were unlovable, you first loved us. You loved us when we didn't deserve it. God, may that, may that humble us to a point and empower us at the same time to share that love with others, even the ones we think don't deserve it, even the ones that it's difficult to love. We see your great love and we, may we just exude it May we share it. May it pour over out from us because your spirit is filling us with your very presence and love. Help us to be that people, God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.